they were like we used to have six jobs we don't know what happened to five uh, you know the first five but at least you know what happened to the sixth one so, you know, oh i, I can guess the- what happened to the other five <laughs> Tony Crosdale. You didn't say who you were. I'm Billy Brown. And I am uh, the honored guest this evening, Michael McGraw. He's the guest and he's the host because we're recording in his living room. Indeed. Aside from just being our buddy, what, why would we have you on this podcast? I am a consulting wildlife biologist. Do work mostly in the Midwest and the Northeast in the United States. Avifaunal ecology and herpetology are my pleasures. There you go. Mike. Ecologist extraordinaire. I'm going to say, I don't, I, I don't think I've met a, at his age anyway, I don't think I've met a more well-rounded naturalist. Well, I appreciate that. All right, so I went back and forth on how to start the second season, on whether we go subtle with something, you know, like charismatic microfauna or some kind of uh, plant, or do we go like big and dramatic with the charismatic megafauna? And maybe it's a weakness, but... The latter. Yeah, I went with the charismatic megafauna. And we chose Mike to be our guest because Mike is himself charismatic megafauna. Uh, this season, we got a lot of exciting stuff to lay on you. We've gone f- totally international. We've gone totally international. Urban wildlife is the international language. We've got, we speak the language of wildlife. Indeed. Um, Nothing better in the Anthropocene, right? Than yes. To- Travel the globe. And tonight we enter in the Anthrobrocene. <laughs> I'll drink to that. We'll mix that up later. Don't worry. Um, but we're going to start big and dramatic um, with big urban carnivores. Even our synanthropic organism is a carnivore. We're going to talk about leopards in, in a couple places. In Mumbai and in India, as well as in Addis Ababa, uh, the capital of Ethiopia. Um, we're also going to talk about hyenas in Addis Ababa. And we don't have any comments because it's the first episode. Yeah. So please comment. Oh, say we, we see our followers are growing. We see subscribers are growing. Facebook, you know, all that stuff. We see that we're getting out there. But we've got listeners all over the world. We've got listeners in England. We've got listeners nice. in China. We've got listeners in Australia. We've got listeners in, in all kinds of rad places. Um, England seems to be a really hotbed of our listeners, apparently. Yes. Well, Nice. And we're bringing to our English listeners with a whole bunch of English stories this year. And so we want to hear from you, even if you're not a scientist, even if you're not a professional. Um, if you can talk about the fox in your garden or the whatever birds you got singing outside your window. The hyena that ate your cousin. The rattlesnake under yeah. the rock outside your garage. I don't know. All these things we find interesting. And uh, you know, there's some things in particular. I'm going to put in a call for some specific things. We want to hear about Australian possums. Yeah, because Tony and I have decided that their pot, your pot, your possums, are cuter than our possums. So much more cute. And I think our pot, I think our opossum, because yeah. they call them possums ever. Ours are technically opossums. Opossums. Opossum were out thou. Our <laughs> opossums, I think they got like a, a charm about them. Well, and also in relative terms, there are only marsupials, so they're so special in that regard. They're very special. And their prehensile tail makes them even extra rad. Have I, I haven't talked on this podcast about the the possum story from in front of my house. Why not? Well, I don't know. Well, here we go. Yeah. So there was a possum laying in the street. Was it dead? Was it just playing possum? And we we're looking at it, and these two guys come up, and they were like, if it was a, if it was the winner, I'd take it home. I'd burn the hair off, and I'd eat it. And my friend's like, man, that thing's too ugly to eat. And the guy just goes, Everybody got to love somebody. And walks <laughs> off. Where was this? Is this in the Northeast? No, no, no. This is at like 50th and, and Cedar. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Everybody got to love And we're just like... It was I like, love that he brought his prey item into like the realm of love. Like, yeah. And we were just like... It's like, I'm not eating this to survive. I'm eating this because I love it. I mean, really... I mean, if you really think about what he said, it doesn't make any sense. But in the moment, <laughs> in the moment me and my friend were just like, yeah. Did you write a poem or a song related to it? We that probably out. will. 
I think we're upping awesome love song. I don't, you know, we're recording this before we have everything, you know, in the queue. So we don't know what we have exactly queued up, but we are going to up the amount of songs and jingles or whatever, what have you, um, this uh, this season too. I hope you prepare for that. Yes, Sam. Yes, you will be. So send us your stuff. It can be like a 30 second little bit that you record on your phone and then, um, you know, hit a, tweet us, hit us on Facebook, email us. You can send us that little bit of sound, and we can put it on the podcast as an audio postcard. Oh, we can talk about another feedback thing uh, that we did have is related to the songs and everything is, in addition to Man Crusher, this other band has reached out to us, Moist Outlet, and they will be uh, providing some of the music for this next season. Um, I credit uh, this guy. We're going to interview him later in the season. I already interviewed him, but we're going to talk about his interview later in the season. Tristan Donovan wrote a great book called Feral Cities. And when I was asking Tristan, like, what he didn't get to fit into the book that he heard about later, he was like, oh, hyenas in Addis Ababa. To which I said, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) He's like, oh, they're real. And so then I Googled it, and the first article I found was something from the BBC, which was a little sensationalistic, um, talking about them eating people and stuff. Um, Just their toes and fingers while they slept. Toes and fingers while they sleep, that kind of thing. Um, And then... Uh, I found another article in The Guardian um, by somebody who's a translator. You'll hear from a second, um, Eve. And he, in his article in The Guardian, um, was like, well, wait a second. I've lived here for like 14 years. I see them all the time. I don't know about them killing anybody, hardly anybody, maybe one person. And so then I said, I have to talk to that guy. And so we did, and here is that interview. Sure. Well, uh, my name is uh, Eve Marie Stranger, and uh, I'm a writer, I'm a simultaneous interpreter and a translator, and I'm based here in Addis Ababa in uh, Ethiopia. I should maybe start by, uh, by telling you about the, the first time I, I, I met some hyenas. I just moved to Addis uh, a couple of months previously, and uh, I was um, walking home after a couple of drinks in uh, one of the busiest areas of town, so uh, maybe a kilometer from the main one of the main avenues in Addis Ababa, and and all of a sudden I came up uh, against um, this couple of hyenas. I was extremely startled. They were not. They uh, they just melted back into the shadows very very easily, calmly while. Uh, I was I was uh, not accustomed to this uh, to meeting this kind of animal. Obviously, uh, they're, they're very very big beasts, and um, uh, so it was it, that was my first real uh, real encounter with uh, such a big um, a big animal, and it was in the in the midst of Addis Ababa, which uh, just to uh, uh, you know situate in, term, in terms of size for your listeners is a city of something like uh, maybe 4 million inhabitants. And um, I, you know, tell people about it the very same night, the next morning, and uh, nobody thought it was any big deal because um, meeting a hyena in, in, in Addis is just, uh, well, I must say was maybe um, uh, at least 14 years ago. It was, I mean, you had, you had hyenas uh, not only visiting the city, but... You even had hyenas um, who had uh, dens in wastelands inside of the city, and um, you know, ever since then, I've uh, I've I've seen hyenas uh, uh, in Addis, uh, all over Ethiopia. You really see that uh, people have um, people have got a very different relationship uh, here in Ethiopia. They're 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 not feared. They're they're normally not not hunted down. They're not really considered to be pests. The city was uh, was basically uh, a large conurbation. Uh, there were lots of people, but there was there were always lots of pockets of uh, you could call it wasteland. Uh, there were there were areas uh, which were farmed, so there's a lot of uh, sort of city gardens, and there were also pasture lands lost in in the middle of all this. So you had a great presence of domestic animals, of um, 
uh, forest land, and Addis is built on the uh, on the uh, the pl- a plain and on the slopes of a ridge that uh, dominates it to the north, uh, which is now covered in forest, which gives it uh, the forest itself now has a great abundance of uh, wildlife. But the the the, the high nature uh, of this city. And the fact that it's uh, sort of built into the slopes of this mountain means that there are a lot of uh, very uh, rapid streams coming through the city. Now, these streams are very deep. Uh, they're ravines, basically. And, I mean, even to this day, uh, as Addis has really become much more built up, these these streams provide very convenient uh, entry points for any uh, large animal that would like to come in. Uh, for example, hyena use these as corridors to get into the city. And uh, and also, of course, because these uh, these streams, even if they're heavy, heavily polluted nowadays, because they've got lots of water and an abundance of, uh, of trees and bush, uh, there's also a lot of bird life, a lot of food, a lot of things happening. And, um, and they're also used, of course, as... Uh, uh, garbage shoots uh, by the inhabitants of the city, which, which me, which is terrible for pollution and, and uh, on many in many ways, many fronts. But at the same time, it means that again, there's an abundance of um, of food. So, so these, to this day, I was saying these are really entry points, corridors uh, for animals such as hyenas. But of course, on the other hand. Uh, Addis is uh, no longer the sort of sleepy, um, interconnected village land that it used to be maybe just 15 years ago. There's a sort of, uh, there's a ring road, there's a tramway that's just opened. The roads are four times wider than when I arrived. Uh, so to, I'm just touching upon the fact that Addis is built up against a, um, a little mountain range, uh, which is completely covered in forest. So, and I, I happen, my house happens to be at the top of the town. I, I'm a few hundred meters, uh, a five-minute walk from uh, the beginning of this forest, which is called uh, uh, Entoto. So, uh, the, the fact that the city is built right up against this forest, it does mean that there is still uh, a huge swathe of territory all along the northern limit of the city, which is... Uh, inhabited by both people and wild animals. So, uh, for example, uh, in my garden, I have, uh, I do still continue to have hyena just about every night. Uh, actually, a few months ago, I went for a walk in the middle of the day, uh, just um, uh, 10 minutes away, maybe. I nearly stepped on a hyena, which was, uh, he, he, he was just lie out bathing, sunbathing. It was asleep in the sun. So I, I, I mean, I nearly walked on it, you know. And um, uh, apart from that, uh, not that I've seen it personally, because that's much more difficult to see, but there's a, there's a strong presence of leopard in the forest uh, as well. And, and again, to, to tell you how interconnected all this is, uh, maybe four or five years ago it was, I, I, the British Embassy here in Addis which is built on this side of town, meaning the northern side, but not next to the forest. It's well inside the built-up area. They, they had a huge problem because they had this uh, leopard that was um, picking up all their cats and dogs. Well, it was picking them off one by one. That is, that is goddamn amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's phenomenal. It's amazing how such a, a beast of an animal, being a Westerner, you know, yeah. the way I grew up, lusting over charismatic megafauna like many do here, you think about lions and hyenas, right? Yeah. And these amazing packs of, you know, the only animals that could stand up to a pride of lions to steal food. And then you learn about their powerful, powerful crushing jaws with their yeah. overlapping teeth. And then to think that they're just sunbathing in the street. As you're walking to work, you can almost step on a sleeping spotted hyena, right? Or that, like, in the middle of the night, you're walking but, home from the bar and, like, oh, look, a couple of hyenas. 
the and I'll I'll mention a few things that'll segue into the next piece I think nicely, um, is that the you know this is a theme that came up very early last season, but that you know at, what we think of as wild animals don't end up on cities just because end up in cities just because right. they come in because there's something that they want or there's a Adaptations. resource that yeah. there's a resource <laughs> that they're coming for. Um, in Addis Ababa, from what I read, it was um, you know urban slaughterhouses and like waste from slaughterhouses and trash and sure. and the dogs. Um, same thing with the leopards; they're coming in for for the dogs and the cats, um, which will s- <laughs> so <laughs> so today's synanthropic <laughs> organism is Canis familiaris. Synanthropic dog. Bow wow wow yippee oh yippee bow wow yippee oh yippee Man's best friend! House dog. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the more I've been reading about dogs, and there's a lot of articles out that I've been reading about origins of dogs, um, and one of the interesting angles of it is that it isn't like our ancestors grabbed some wolf pups and just brought them into the, into the tent. Right. They, or to the cave. The, the idea is that these were wolves that started following humans around on and the fringes of the campsites for a long time. God knows how many hundreds of the thousands of years. Right. Um, and then they sort of got brought in as pets too. Like out in you know Philadelphia, <sighs> we think of dogs as pets. Like the default dog is one that's living in someone's house as their friend. And in a lot of places in the world, and probably for the for most of the history of dogs, that was not the default dog. The default dog was a dog living in the street or a dog that's like semi-pet, yeah. like which we're going to hear about right. in our next piece. Which is much more coincides with the traditional relationship between a wild dog and people. Exactly. And it also sets them up more as a synanthropic organism, like commensal in the same idea as, as this is going to piss off the dog people, but kind of like a rat or like a pigeon. You know, like an yeah. animal that lives around us and eats our scraps. Yeah. Um, and yeah, benefits from our scraps. Synanthropic organism. And so when we think of a resource that leopards might come into a, into a city for, they're coming in for to our, hunt the domesticated, the, the semi-domesticated, domesticated dogs. Part of my brain thinks of like in ecology terms of like nutrient flows, you know? Uh-huh. And so like, it's sort of just like a, you know the, the crumbs from someone's soft pretzel, like it's eaten by a pigeon that gets eaten by a peregrine falcon. You know, like so in yeah. in whether it's Addis Ababa or in Nairobi or in Bangalore or in Mumbai. I've even heard Beijing, although we're having trouble tracking that down. The nutrient flow is like humans, human trash. You know, mm-hmm. maybe dog food back to to leopards. So the most famous place where humans and leopards are interacting um, in a city is Mumbai in India. Mumbai, um, otherwise known in the past more as Bombay, is the financial, commercial, and entertainment capital of India. It is a really big city, population oh, yeah. something like 12 million, and a metropolitan area 18 million. So it's ridiculous. Massive city, kind of like the New York plus Los Angeles of India. So we have two interviews. One with Sunetro Goshal, who volunteers slash works with basically a friends group for a national park on the edge of Mumbai doing uh, work on the the leopard-human interaction stuff. And then with a guy who had volunteered with them in the past, is now working more independently, um, but who had talked about a specific episode of of humans and leopards interacting. So we're going to listen to these guys now. Okay, my name is uh, Sunetra Ghoshal, and I'm part of this project uh, called Mumbai Curse by SGNB which was started by the Forest Department in Bombay to manage leopards. And my background is basically I study human-wildlife interactions, especially large carnivores. Uh, maybe I should start with giving you a little background about SGNP. Okay, it's a 104-square-kilometer uh, park, of which 56 square kilometers is within the municipal limits of uh, Mumbai. Uh, the landscape inside the park is undulating and it's uh, more, part of it is moist deciduous uh, forest and part of it is dry deciduous. It's got a couple of reservoirs, uh, at least two of them are within the park. Uh, and what is important is just as you leave the park, the density of human population 
immediately outside the park is a, the average is about 21 20 odd thousand per square kilometer people per square kilometer and like there are a mix of uh, like you have housing colonies some high-end housing colonies some middle-income housing colonies lots of slums um, so there's it's a very diverse landscape in that sense so this is one of four protected areas that are within a metropolis uh, in the world uh, but this is one of the only places where you have a large carnivore that is that has a say a history in at least in India of killing people. There has been a spurt of attacks. For instance, in 2004, there was a spurt of attacks um, in SGNP, the Sanjay Gandhi National Park. Now, the Forest Department had uh, some resources available to try and understand how interaction between people and leopards around Sanjay Gandhi National Park in Bombay. Because most of the laws are meant to protect uh, large carnivores like leopards in protected areas. So they didn't really have many management tools and strategies to manage them in a metropolitan area like Bombay. So that, that's when they, they initiated this project with the resources they have. And the idea was to first do some research to understand what the issues uh, are around human leopard interactions and then to uh, then have mitigation measures implemented. So outreach and things like that. And most of the people on it are on it on a, on a voluntary basis because they're interested. Uh, in my case, I've grown up around SGNP. So for me, it's giving back something to this space that has given me a lot. Uh, this is master student who did some camera trapping around SGNP last year, and he was able to identify a minimum of 35 individual animals, which is a lot, which is higher than most protected areas in the world. So that's the minimum estimate. There might be more that didn't, that weren't recorded in his camera trap. In 2011, when we had done camera trapping, we had identified 21 individuals. So how connected are they to leopards and other places? Is the park sort of surrounded by, um, by metropolitan area? Or, or is there interaction or exchange of individuals with other leopard populations? <laughs> now, the honest answer is we don't really know about the movement because uh, we haven't really done any um, coloring of le leopards in the area. So we don't know about the movement. However, having said that, uh, there was one instance where the biologist was talking about Vidya Atharya. She had, she had colored animals of about uh, 200 odd kilometers east of the National Park. And one of them actually walked 100 odd uh, kilometers in the span of 20 odd days to reach the periphery of the national park and he just walked directly like he knew exactly where he was going so chances are that's not unusual of movement chances are this one was you know trapped and relocated and was just returning back to uh, where he was originally from um, so based on that we would suspect that there is movement we just don't know of the movement Regarding the connectivity, uh, on three sides of the park, uh, there is the metropolitan zone on three sides. But in the north, it is connected to another protected area called Tungareshwar Wildlife Sanctuary. So that, um, if they are looking at forest, that could be one way of going through. But they are also known the leopard I was talking to you earlier. He, at times, you know, crossed the highway, crossed habitation, and just got to where he wanted to get to. Are, are, yes. there, are you getting calls along the way that people are seeing it, or is it doing all of this unseen? I think it would be a mix. I think a lot of this is unseen because uh, they're extremely sensitive and extremely uh, uh, smart uh, animals. So they all, if they know the area, they know when people are around, and they uh, change their behavior to also respond to, say, the way people are using the space. Uh, in the case of this animal, it probably was moving mostly at night. It may have been seen off and on, but uh, I mean, a lot of those people were not reported. Uh, a lot of them live, uh, especially people who have lived around the National Park for several decades, for instance, they don't really call if they see a leopard. They are used to, they often say uh, they've always been around. 
But the problem often starts when you have people who have moved in in the last, say, 10 years, 15 years, who have come from other areas, who don't really have any background or history with leopards. So when they see a leopard, for them, that is a problem. So they are the ones who would call and, you know, want a solution for what they see as a danger, a risk. I uh, see 2004 was the big spurt. After that, from 2006 to 2012, there were no attacks or fatal attacks or even uh, non-fatal attacks. 2012 to 2013, there were about seven fatal attacks. And since 2013, there have been no fatal attacks around the national park. This was this is one of the things that has been covered a lot in the media whenever it happens, and that is uh, the media also often has been used to at least hype it up, talking about bloodthirsty or man-eating, uh, you know, leopards that are roaming the landscape and stuff like that, which I don't think really did a very good PR job for the leopards. So anyway, but they, the media has been one of the groups that we have uh, worked with over the last couple of years, and the reporting has changed, and they are making an effort to go deeper. And I think that as the the role the media has played in the last couple of years has been a very responsible one, where they have been informing but not uh, causing panic. When there are attacks, um, yeah. what is a typical sort of attack, um, you know, or what are the, 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 the patterns of how people get attacked? I wouldn't say that there are specific patterns. There are these usual notions that, you know, they won't attack someone who's, uh, say, taller than, say, knee height, for instance. But uh, we don't really know what happens when they actually attack. Uh, like each case, we've investigated quite a few. Each case has been different. Uh, we don't really know the animal which attacks, so we don't really know why it attacked. In some cases, it has been opportunistic. Uh, so <clears throat> I don't, I, I don't think we can make a general statement on that. But what we can speak about is say what happened in 2004. That was a little different from what happened in 2012. Since 2012. Because earlier there was a notion that, you know, it's a wild animal, what it needs is forest. If you release a wild animal in the forest, it'll survive. It, you know, the sense of that social territoriality of the animals was not something that uh, everyone was aware of, including, say, scientists. So uh, what was happening is a lot of uh, animals are being trapped in other parts of the state. And this area was the only one that had a rescue center. So they would bring them and put them in the rescue center here. And uh, when it was full, they would release them in the forest with the notion that it'll survive. But what has been found, and uh, the biologist was talking about with the Atreya, she's focused on this, um, is that uh, you take an animal, once it's traumatized when it's being trapped, and two, you're releasing it in a, in a space where it doesn't know anything. So that's recipe for trouble. And then it starts homing back to where it came from, and it would move through, say, human habitation, encounter people, is already stressed, and a lot of those attacks, uh, we believe, were caused by such animals. Uh, now, trapping has been has more or less stopped, and uh, now the focus is on trying to work with, say, people to get them to understand that just sighting does that mean you know you should trap the animal? And if you trap the animal, other animals will move into that area because there is a lot of prey. So, so talk about your um, the work of the group. Um, yes, the phase one focused on trying to understand different aspects of this interaction. So, partly say looking at say media reports, for instance, and where they were, uh, you know, what sort of reports they were. Um, looking at what people think, looking at, uh, you know, the, we did some camera trapping to at least get an idea of, you know, individuals and to start creating a database of, you know, individual animals. In twelve, for instance, there were uh, two attacks. So then we got involved in investigating, uh, you know, trying to find out what may have happened and if any intervention is required. Um, and there were cases where I think the biggest challenge that has been there now over the last couple of years is CCTV cameras. 
because earlier people would not be aware of leopards, but now they have proof that it's come to their, you know, their area. And that they that can then be circulated on social media, for instance, which means it's a good, like, then it, there's a lot of panic going around there. So we got involved in a couple of those things, and that, that's when we realized that one of the most important thing, and also from the research we did, that the most important thing was to have an outreach program to build that uh, relationship between the forest department and the different stakeholders that they need to work with to manage this interaction. So phase two was implementing those recommendations. So say, for instance, the police. Uh, there are cases where, say, a leopard may have gone into a, a building and then is not able to come out. Uh, now the forest is, uh, that can handle the animal but they don't have enough people to say, manage crowds and people get inquisitive, they want to take photographs and things. So then we've been working with, uh, the department has been working with the police to try and also sensitize them that when there's a situation like this, you focus on crowd control, allow us to just do our work. And that the police has been receptive. Then we've been working with the municipality because waste management, street lighting is their jurisdiction. And these are two issues which are very important in terms of, say, there's waste, there are things like dogs, rats, uh, leopards feed on them. Uh, people see them, get scared. So, you know, trying to reduce the sort of attractions, if I can call it, in these areas by working with the residents and the municipality. And yes, then there are the residents who are, I think, one of the key actors in this whole thing. Are the dogs that the leopards are preying on, are they sort of free-roaming stray dogs? Are they people's pets? Are they both? Are they sort of, what is, I guess, what's the relationship of the dogs to the people in the places where the leopards are eating the dogs? <laughs> okay. Uh, the largest population is free-ranging stray dogs, but there are also pets, and there are also community-owned dogs, like, say, an apartment building, they have a dog that they, you know, they'll be feeding and taking care of, and it stays, like, at the lobby and things like that. So it's not exactly a pet, but it's not exactly a free-ranging stray either. So you have a whole uh, spectrum of relationships. Um, now, for instance, I can give an example of a leopard that had come into an apartment building, and they had a German shepherd, which was community-owned. It was living in the compound, but it was being fed by people in the apartment building and they had a CCTV uh, camera installed and they had footage of the uh, dog chasing the leopard away. That made news. Uh, so, you know, there's that interaction also. Um, then there was another instance where uh, if, on YouTube, if you actually do a search. Uh, oh, believe me. Is this the one with the small dog that the leopard popped into the lobby and pulled it yes. out? Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> So there are, when we spoke to the people in that apartment uh, building complex, uh, they were like, we used to have six dogs. We don't know what happened to five, uh, you know, the first five, but at least we know what happened to the sixth one. So, you know, oh, I, I can guess the, what happened to the other five. <laughs> I know, but they had no, like, at least they know definitely what happened. So, so there are things like that. And then there are, you know, these stray dogs, which will be outside these apartment building complexes and there'll be some which are within which are not really fed but they are there people don't drive them away so there's a whole mix of these things regarding the stray dogs there are uh, in the first phase when we had sampled one area called RA we had found 56 dogs per square kilometer in an area which is 13 square kilometers spread over 13 square kilometers so we estimate like there were 600 odd dogs in that area so just to give you an idea the second part I would say is like the there there is a lot of prey within the park also, but what we have been realizing over the last few few years is that there are some leopards that actually live partly in the park and partly outside. So that's part of the territory. Like we would like to think of them as you know animals that live in the forest, but apparently they don't think in the same way. And then there are some other leopards that we have noticed that they seem to live outside the park. Like they don't go into the park at all. And, you know, they, they have actually grown up around human areas in the city. We know one individual, she actually grew up in and, in and around the housing colony. And we have photographs of her as a cub. We have photographs of her. She was very graceful, is very graceful. Uh, and we had photographs that, you know, people, 
residents of the apartment buildings have taken photographs of her and just shared it with us. They said she's not a problem. We see her often on. I want to make sure I introduce the second part, um, which is by um, Vishal Shah, who had volunteered with the project, is now um, no longer associated with it, but on the website, which we'll link to for the Mumbaikers, for the SGNP, you'll find an essay, sort of a report about the factory incident he's about to describe. So the animal uh, it just came out of nowhere, actually, because this factory, if you look it up on the maps, uh, it's located quite far from the, uh, you know, the national park. And it's also like, you know, like here's the national park. Here is an education campus. It's, you know, the Indian Institute of Technology. Then there's a, a huge uh, residing colony of, uh, you know, people. And then there's a four-lane road. And then, of course, there's a, around four tracks, the local train line. And then again, here is the factory. Now, we were wondering where the hell the leopard came from. You know, <laughs> is, uh, like, how, how did it cross so much? And how, how did it enter the factory? And now on the other side of the factory, so here, here is from the National Park till the factory, I, I explained to you the situation. Now, on the right-hand side uh, of the factory, we have the mangrove area completely. It's more uh, easy to, you know, come from the mangrove side. But again, uh, the park is pretty far away from the mangroves. There's a connection, but it's like uh, a round connection. It's pretty far and it's pretty long. So, but we never really knew where the leopard came from. So now this leopard just entered the factory and it got, uh, you know, trapped inside the workshop. Now, uh, it was spotted a couple of times before. It uh, took away a couple of, uh, you know, dogs uh, there and... Uh, so, uh, so they had already called the forest department a couple of times. We went there and we tried to set up camera traps, but the leopard was not really uh, captured in the you know camera. So uh, eventually, this leopard it you know it, it got trapped in the workshop. So so all the workers and the manager, of course, uh, they they just ran out when the leopard got inside the workshop. They they closed all the doors and windows uh, from outside. Now the doors and windows were made of glass. Uh, partially of glass. Now the windows were okay. Held, they they held on pretty strong, but the doors were not really locked properly. Now here is a situation where you know the leopard does not know what to do because it's been surrounded by people uh, from outside, and uh, you know it's uh, there's a lot of grease around, and you know it's very slippery, and the leopard is like trying to come out of each and every exit, you know that it could try to search for. So what happened was, uh, you know, the you know the police and the manager, uh, uh, the factory manager, that he was just uh, you know standing outside and they were trying to, you know, figure out a way, you know, to capture the animal. The forest department was on its way and so on. So like I said, the doors were not you know properly locked, and uh, that's when it happened. Uh, that the the animal just you know just pounced on the door, and uh, the door just you know just opened. <laughs> and uh, the animals just came out and uh, people were really like shocked uh, or, you know, how the hell did it you know get out of the workshop and uh, the manager and the police they were just sitting around having a you know a cup of tea outside <laughs> and yeah the manager he he was uh, noticing the leopard and the leopard just came out and by the time he looked back like you know uh, he he saw that he was the only person uh, remaining there because even the police had fled, fled the situation. And uh, like the, the the workers, of course, they ran away. The police ran away and he was the only guy uh, who was standing there <laughs> with the leopard in front of him. And, you know, uh, just the police car, the police van uh, standing there. And it was like a, a pretty... Uh, <laughs> you know, dangerous situation uh, for the manager. Uh, but the leopard here, uh, it actually uh, was not interested, you know, in attacking anyone there. And uh, it just, you know, it just hid, uh, you know, below the van. And uh, the and then after some time, it just, you know, ran off and just disappeared in the slums uh, next to the factory. Wow. I just went there and, yeah, and even, uh, it wasn't even spotted in the slums. And it's not that it was very dark during that time. It might, uh, might have been around 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening, you know. And uh, it just uh, it just disappeared and was never uh, really you know spotted again. There's a 
lot to chew on in there. Uh, yeah. Literally. Um, First thing I thought of is that if there was, I mean, the, the spurt of attacks that Sinetra referenced was, according to an article I found that I'll link to, that between 1991 and 2013, there were uh, 176 attacks, and then 84 between 2002 and 2004, several of those fatal. I can't imagine a predator in the United States being permitted to exist next to a city if it's killing oh, those yeah. kind of that many people. So that's that's its own interesting cultural statement right there. Yeah, um, I mean, think about Aldo Leopold in, you know, was it the we early just, 1900s? We're in Mike's living room where he's got a copy of Sand County Almanac, which is my Bible, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's a, a well-appreciated book. So uh, he talks about the Lone Mountain, right? There's a, there's a mountain outside, it's somewhere in, in New Mexico, where there was this grizzly... And just because it existed, somewhat remotely near town, the whole town, and then ultimately the, 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 the county and then the state all got behind. They sent bounty hunters to go kill this thing. And nobody could shoot it. So eventually they set like a snare trap that ended up killing this majestic beast. Just because it was remotely beast. close. Well, thank you. Even remotely close to civilization. Yeah. Right? I mean, we, we are terrible and terribly afraid of um, charismatic megafauna. Apparently not so much, though, in, in, in India. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just inherent with the landscape. There hasn't been a culture of... There's been more of a culture of respect for super predator animals than there's been a persecution. Yeah, and this is reference to some of the materials that we'll link to um, about how that the, the people who are used to living around the park um, don't... It isn't like this is some scary exotic threat. It's like a routine threat, like we think of like crossing the street is like right. having leopards around. Um, and and as Sinetro had had described, the 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 spate of attacks um, was probably because of relocated leopards that were not that right. didn't know the the way around, were panicked, sure. were. Lost essentially, and you look at that spike in attacks over one year, and it really gets down to the individual basis. Yeah, right? there's a few leopards. I mean, in there there's a couple leopards that have yeah. a, they've found success in hunting, predating humans. And we're gonna link to the just because why? How could we not to the the CCTV? How you say CCTV video of the leopard popping into the lobby of the apartment building to pull out the dog. I, you know, you feel for the dog, but damn. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's a, a, a lot of people have seen because it was a viral video. I believe it's a, uh, it's a, it's a predation in South America on a crocodilian. It was like they came and getting picked off by that. Jag. Yeah, by a jag, right? But the same thing. I mean, this animal just quietly, stealthily walks up behind an unsuspecting. It swims resting, up on it. I know, but now I'm relating that to this right. video. Yeah. Where, you know, you can imagine that the dog is just facing the other way, head down, you know, resting. And just, like, came out with the dog. Kill tactic as if it was, you know, truly in the wild with a wild prey item, you know. But in this case, like, a, a marble or linoleum floor of a, of a lobby. Okay. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, there's all kinds of little things implied in that video. Of, like, a leopard being comfortable around an apartment complex. Like, yeah. having... It, that, that, like you mentioned, that's dog well, number six. There. It was subletting yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was dog number six. So that the... leopard's like done this before a few times, oh, yeah. and this is just like, just like you think of a leopard in its favorite like stand of rushes, like running after impala or something. I don't know, but like this is a leopard in its hunting ground in yeah. the lobby going for a dog. This animal clearly knows the landscape. Yeah. Right? Well. It was Airbnb, the leopard. <laughs> the leopard, like, totally got on Airbnb just to get access to that building hot dogs. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something serious to segue. Well, here. it seems like a perfect storm, frankly. If you have a forest that's been inhabited by leopards, which are, um, forgive me for not knowing an, an adequate amount of the life history of these animals, but I'm going to make some assumptions. Please correct me if I'm Do my best. wrong. But, I mean, these animals are likely solitary by nature, part, yeah. right? I think the only communal cats are lions. So they're solitary in nature. They have huge home ranges, right? Yeah. And if three of your edges are urbanized landscapes, Which is, yeah. and there's opportunities to get food with less work, potentially, which most 
You know, that's, you know, that's synanthropic organism. You know, that's why squirrels and robins and cats and dogs, you know, have these great benefits because it's, you know, there's a better, they can, they can eke out a decent living based on, you know, how we roll. So, um, that creates a culture of animals that I would say, what, 15 to 17 years, the average lifespan of a panther? Uh, 12 to 17, according to Wikipedia. Okay. 12 to 17, according to Wikipedia, which is a terrible reference but it's all we have right now and it's likely likely accurate about a dozen years sounds yeah, about right yeah sure so i mean an animal that spends a better half of its life understand mapping its landscape whether it's urban or wild right is going to really understand how to get around right i wonder and i apologize if i missed it did they say where they do these leopards come in from the forest to hunt and come back? Or do they, there, they there's there's one of three scenarios. There's there's animals that live entirely in the forest. There's animals whose home ranges are half or partially in the forest and partially in the urbanized landscape. And then there's animals that they know with confidence are entirely urban panthers. And that's the part that blew my mind. Yeah. Um, because they're, it isn't just like they, they operate, they, they, you know... They feel like hunting deer one day, and tomorrow maybe I'll go get a dog. Right. These are these are these are leopards that live around apartment complexes. Right. And that's their home. It's an apartment complex. Yeah. And like, yeah, they're like under. You know, they there's they have to have a, a a daily a daytime hideout that's like, you know, under the foundation of a building or like you know what I mean? something like that yeah. or like up in the trees. up in a tree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of like my. My grandparents lived their condo building like at the edge of just outside Philadelphia. Like yeah. imagining, like a leopard like hanging out in the tree in the parking lot, right. and then like hopping down at night to hunt dogs and deer. And it's essentially what you've got there, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's the. I mean, we have raccoons that behave similarly, but they're well, but raccoons. it's but it's what's happened with coyotes in American cities. Yeah. Where like some of them will live like in parks and come out. Then you got ones that like basically den up. In like in Chicago, in parking garages, sure, and like that's, that's their wild. home base. That's so wild, and so it's the yeah. it's the same pattern with the leopards. It's just that instead of being coyotes that are thirty pounds, <laughs> these are cats that can like kill you and haul you up a tree. You know, I've heard someone said that uh, the human equivalent of leopard strength would be climbing a three story building with a couch in your teeth. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> Um, I guess I'll, I'll put out a call, for, uh, another request, because I know that there are leopards in Beijing. I've been hearing about it, um, but it's hard to find people who speak English and can talk about leopards in Beijing. Basically, we want we want your stories. I, there's a few things, so we're going to wrap up this episode. I'm going to put out a call for a few more topics. We talked about we want to hear about possums in Australia. Um, I want to hear about urban weasels. We also want to hear about like. Mongooses, civets. Is it mongoose? No. <laughs> um, I want to hear about civets. Genets. And genets. I mean, civets keep Wasn't popping up. Vivacity Day, whatever, that and whole group. Of- I know that there are urban um, palm civets um, in a lot of Southeast Asia. I know they've been introduced to Japan, and there, so there are urban palm civets, but they're like exotic in Japan. So we want to hear about that. Um, we want to hear, I don't know, man, it's a long list. I, I saw hear... some urban marmosets in Sao Paulo. Do you know anybody who... Marmosets? Like cute-ass marmosets? Yeah. Oh, my God. I have a video of me like feeding them and shit. It's what? awesome. Why didn't you tell me this before? You've been holding out. I'm going to be honest with you, Billy. <laughs> I get around the... And I see lots of wildlife in cities. It's hard to recall everyone <laughs> while I've seen a city every time. But marmosets? Yeah. You didn't like seeing a crow. It's the cutest yeah. damn thing you ever did see. They, they are ridiculous. Like, straight up, like, I was, like, you know, I was hanging out with Paulo, my, my, my main man in Brazil, and he's just like, oh, we got some time before I bring you back to your hotel. Let's go feed some marmosets. He's like, let's go, he's like, let's go feed some, like, you know, and my hotel was in Sao Paulo, you know, he's like, oh, let's just go feed some marmosets in this park in Sao Paulo. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, like, he, he walks up there, he buys, like, bana- like those little tiny bananas from, like, some dude, and there's yeah. just, like, marmosets chilling in this park. This trip I need fun. someone to tell me that in a, and be serious. And like, you know? straight up. Yo, marmosets chill in this park. Yeah. A word? Like, <laughs> let me get some bananas. Like, yeah. <laughs> 
so those are some of our requests for topics and basically anything else. I mean, if you're if you're in an urban area and you got a smartphone which can record voice notes, which we know you do, and you're seeing something cool, tape a little something and send it our way, or call us on our our voicemail at two six seven six zero three three two one nine. Again, two six seven six zero three three two one nine. If you've got a, if yeah, thinking bigger, if you've got something you want us to interview somebody about, if you've got a research study that you're doing, you want to talk about it a little bit, we're always happy to talk. Um, hit us up on Twitter at Herb Wildlife Cast. Find us on Facebook. Uh, you can write us at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com and throw in some comments and rate us on your favorite podcasting app, whether you're listening to us on Stitcher or I think we're going to start doing SoundCloud. Yeah. Um, iTunes. Tell us what you think of it. Give it a rating. Tell your friends. Next episode, we're going to do where art and urban wildlife intersect. So we're going to talk to a dude from Miami who studies, who Tony talked to who studies corals in Miami hmm. um, and does and does sort of public art installations about Miami corals. Um, and then we're going to talk to uh, a guy who I found from Dhaka in Bangladesh about starlings in Dhaka and his okay. his project looking at um, starlings in the work of one of Bangladesh's favorite or most uh, famous poets. Um, and that'll be waiting for you next time you tune into the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Cheers, everybody. Enjoy urban wildlife every day. Every day. Podcast. What was the podcast brought to us tonight by Old Crow? Old Crow. Old Crow. The um, Corvus Maze. <laughs> the Corvus Maze.